Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I got a medical doctor. He wrote the plant-based diet, and he's a super cool person that I saw a presentation with, where after I was like, I need to get him on the podcast. So I got Tobias Smith Hansen in. So Tobias, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So Tobias, you are a medical doctor, but you're also very much into how to treating patients with life changes and food instead. That's true. I had to experience how my diet affected me at a quite a young age. I had like a brain inflammation encephalitis when I was in high school, around 18. And that caused me to quite quickly um, get rid of this illusion that most young men have, that they're immortal. Yeah. Like they can eat what they want, they can drink what they want, they can like, yeah, not have to worry about their health whatsoever. Disease is something that's 50 years ahead. Mm. So my illness at that, that point made me quite weak, it gave me a lot of chronic pain. And I had to figure out a way to kind of manage it. Medically, there wasn't much to offer. So the only tools that I had was kind of like to regain my, my strength and my constitution by changing my life. And it was in some ways easier to figure out what was good for me when I was so weak. Because normally when you eat something that's good for you, you don't necessarily feel an initial effect. Mm. The same when you eat something that is bad for you you might not feel it has a negative effect until maybe 30 years down the road but at age 18 i had like a very initial effect to basically everything that i did what i eat what kind of exercise i did if i was getting stressed it would deplete me instantly if i Mm. did something that was bad for my body so i quite quickly learned by trial and error to like really really take good care of of my body And I started eating what is considered a whole food, plant-based diet at that time, even uh, without having a knowledge of what it was. I'd never read about it. I'd never heard anyone talk about it. I'd never even seen anyone like eat a vegan diet. So it was just something that I initially came to just from feeling that it was the right thing for me. And that sparked like quite an interest in health in general. I'd always thought I would go into political science. I Mm -hmm. I had like early on a, a big idea that I wanted to do something to change the world and I thought it was going to be through politics but getting that illness kind of got me interested into health which is I guess is quite a natural turn of events in a good way to in actually good, make an impact in, 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 in a good way yeah even though I did all those lifestyle changes I still had quite a lot of pain I was still very tired so I was also looking into all sorts of alternative therapies I was traveling all around Europe trying to find some therapy that could help me and at one point I ended up in in England where I met an Australian guy who did Japanese medicine and he kind of took me under his wing and I studied with him for maybe a week or two and when I got back to Denmark after that I just kind of looked up which college he had gotten his training from and I took a loan of 100,000, paid the tuition and I moved to Australia where I studied Japanese medicine for a year, which was 
a very, very learning experience for me also, where I really got into depth with meditation and yoga and all kinds of these more Eastern practices. For a long time, I thought I was just going to study Japanese and Chinese medicine for the rest of my life and become a doctor of Chinese medicine, but... A grandmaster. A grandmaster. Yeah, like, I really, like, that thought really, um, I like that. Yeah. But I kind of ran out of money. Like, you, you don't get any uh, subsidies for studying these things and no, no student aid. So I just ran out of money and I was like, okay, well, and now I know I want to do something that has to do with health. So the second best thing must be a medical degree. Yeah. So I kind of reluctantly applied to medical school also because I never really um, wanted to be within like a scientific field. I always thought like uh, math and physics and chemistry was like the most boring subjects in high school. But I applied and, and I got in and I also had an idea that I was going to learn something about health because I was very focused on like optimizing my health, my health getting uh, stronger and uh, and more mentally uh, clear and just more efficient. But I was, I was quite disappointed with that, at least in medical school. I think I had maybe around two classes on diet for a six-year program. And when you say two classes, you don't mean like, no, like a two, full semester? Like is... two lectures, yeah. two lectures on diet. And I, I remember them quite distinctly because I thought it was, they were quite absurd. The first one was... Uh, about malnourished kids in Africa and the second one was about obesity and the guy who gave the lecture was a surgeon and just came in and said well it doesn't matter what you eat there's no way you can get anyone to lose weight by changing their diet and then he spent the rest of the like the lecture and talking about surgery so I was I was quite disappointed that there was like basically no emphasis on diet or lifestyle in general And that's not only in Denmark. So you're trained as a medical doctor in Denmark, yeah. but it's the same story here in most other Western countries, at least. Definitely, definitely. And what I found was quite interesting was like whenever we had like a a new disease that we had to learn about, there was always like one little paragraph in the chapter etiology. What's the cause of it? And it basically always said, "We don't know. We don't know. We don't yeah. know." And I was like, "How don't we know? <laughs> what does how does this disease arises?" And now that I've like spent so many hours looking into nutrition research, it's just so clear that we do know how these diseases arise. So I just find it quite baffling that you would have a medical doctor write otherwise in a in a medical textbook. Mm. But I think that's still the case today. Yeah. yeah. And then you started searching and doing some research or more research on this whole plant-based diet and in general health. Yeah. A lot of my focus on the vegan diet was... Mostly because I, I was a vegan back in uh, the early 2000s when there wasn't that many. So I was still getting all the annoying questions that some vegans now don't get that many of, like where do you get your protein and stuff like that. So But where do you get your protein? From? <laughs> <laughs> food, like everyone else. Yeah. But so it, it kind of forced me into like look into it because I wanted to give like a, a good scientific answer to these questions. So I, I started looking into the more um, scientific literature on, on the vegan diet. And I did my bachelor's on, on soy and its effect on breast cancer. And the more I got into it, the more fascinated I got. And what it kind of really opened up for me was when I read the China study. 
And but even though now I have now I have a bit of conflicting feelings about that book now, but at that time it was kind of the first time I had uh, read a book about the benefits of a, a plant-based diet. So I, my mind was quite blown at the time. And secondly, it was when I discovered the website called nutritionfacts.org. It was a, a non-profit organization led by a, a British, an American doctor called Mike Greger, where he does an amazing job of condensing a lot of literature into like small videos that are super transparent about where he grabs the knowledge from and are super funny. When I like found that website, I probably spent like a month just glued to the TV, just watching every single video. So that really like got me really hooked in like trying to to use diet more in my clinical practice. Before then, it had been mostly something that I had kind of been working mm. with for self optimization, and that was around the same time that I was I was doing my first year of of clinical work after I had graduated and I was just seeing so so many patients with a lot of different lifestyle diseases most had three to four kind of lifestyles they all had high cholesterol high blood pressure they were obese they had insulin resistance many of them had the full package and I I didn't feel good just prescribing the medicine and just saying take these pills and you'll be fine because I knew that the pills weren't that efficient. Most of the ways we treat these disorders is not that efficient. And I wanted to tell them about the possibilities of, of lifestyle change. And I found it to be very hard. You only have 15 minutes. And all the literature and I had found, all the, the web pages I found that had good <coughs> information were all in English. So I couldn't even just say, read this book or look up this web page. So luckily, I, I met a clinical dietitian around that part time. We were probably in, in 2014, 2015 at this time. And she was also working with a plant-based diet. And, and, and she was also kind of the only clinical dietitian in Denmark that had, was had a, like a, an interest in this. And I felt like I was the only medical doctor in Denmark who had an interest in this field. So we teamed up and we said, okay, we need, we need a book so we can rend- recommend people so they can really actually get a grasp of what is a healthy diet because people are very, very confused about what a healthy diet is. Not only what a plant-based diet is, but what a healthy diet is. So I took a half a year of work and I just sat in the library and just took uh, one scientific study after the other and just grinding them through and uh, kind of making this book kind of like my own personal notebook of all Mm -hmm. the things that I've felt was important and all the things that I felt that I should have learned in medical school. And it ended up being like the plant-based diet. And I think we have over 800 scientific citations in it. And now it's been out, I don't know, four years. And been happy to experience that it's definitely changed some lives since it's come out. And I'm very happy every time I hear a story of how it it helps someone and sometimes people walk up to me on, my, me on the street and says like it, it really changed the life for me or my family or something like that but i still feel that it hasn't made the effect on the medical profession that i kind of wanted it to one of the reasons why we made it so it's quite for some people it's quite dense a lot of heavy dry terms a lot of citations so we kind of wanted a book that would also would help normal people but also with kind of shift or colleagues 
and we haven't really found that that has been the case. No. And so that's been a, a huge disappointment for for us and something that we're still really um, struggling with yeah. today. But at least you're still changing some life. I think the medical profession that's going to take a, a bit longer to get them moving, but I see, I meet more and more doctors. That mm. might also because I'm more in the environment, mm. but they're getting their eyes up, opening their eyes and kind of diving into and also saying like, yeah, we learn about medicine, not not really health in the same manner. Yeah. I think you, you'll, you'll be hard pressed to find a profession that's more conservative than the medical profession. And what I often find is that the mindset is actually not very scientific. <clears throat> Sometimes, like when I talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet to some doctors, they all kind of criticize me for not being very scientific, that I'm cherry-picking or I'm just speaking out of my own uh, ethical opinions about what a, what a good diet is and we shouldn't hurt animals and stuff like that. But what I do f- find is interesting is that scientists have actually been quite good at like describing what kind of mindset it is that makes you open to learning. And they've like described three qualities. One is curiosity, one is openness, and one is skepticism. And what I find is like most doctors have really perfected the skepticism, <laughs> but they're kind of lacking the curiosity and the openness to kind of accept that things might not be as they thought it was. Hmm. So I, I, that's just something I find to be quite curious. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the key takeaways from uh, the plant-based diet? Like, what are some very concrete things that we can do? I think one of the key takeaways is that a lot of people have an idea that a healthy diet is something that is quite individual and that you would have like an, an ideal diet to prevent heart disease, an ideal diet to prevent cancer, one that like is good for your microbiome, one that's good for inflammation and stuff like that. But luckily, nature has made it way more simple than most people think it is for basically everyone like a healthy diet is one that is predominantly plant-based and it's predominantly unprocessed we, we tend to make diet very complicated but if you just follow these two basic rules you'll be well off like your risk of getting most of the lifestyle diseases that we see extremely common today you can almost eliminate the risk of them. For example, atherosclerosis, like you can you can get your risk down to basically zero. And this is like, I think it's the number two killer in the Western world now. It's competing with, with cancer. You can get your risk down to zero with an optimal diet. And the same goes with type 2 diabetes. At least 90% could probably be prevented. Um, I think diabetes, type 2 diabetes, the more I learn about that, it's absolutely insane how many people we can get out. Mm. And... The results in like two to four weeks. Some people with diabetes too can get out just mm. with food and their life changes, but so many people can. Mm. So what are some of the things? So like a good plant-based diet, staying away from a processed food. What are some some of the really good things to eat if, for example, diabetes or someone something else? Well, it's basically the same for all the lifestyle diseases. Like uh, you really want to minimize animal fat, especially for type two diabetes, because it it tends to be the number one thing that's linked with insulin resistance. And also, all foods that are inflammatory tend to cause insulin resistance. It's basically the cells, they, they don't they lose the, the ability to uh, activate the cell receptors that will take the sugar from the, the blood into the muscle and, and liver tissue where it needs to be stored. And the reason why it, it doesn't work is 
is inflammation. Most of that comes from excess fats, from our own fat storage, and from the fat that we eat. But also, basically everything that's inflammatory will inhibit this function. So if you look at what is the most inflammatory food there is, it's processed meat. And what you also see in like large meta-analysis is that for each gram of processed meat you eat, your risk of type 2 diabetes increases with 1%. So the average meal in Denmark, probably around 60 to 70 grams of processed meat a day, that alone will elevate the risk for about 70%. So that's probably the main thing to avoid. And then you just want a lot of anti-inflammatory foods. They're, they're the same foods that are, that are good for, um, for type 2 diabetes. So for example, just giving people that have beginning uh, insulin resistance, like pre-diabetes, if you give them like turmeric and follow them over, um, over a couple of years, you'll see that they tend not to develop type 2 diabetes. When you have the control group, 30 to 40% of those would actually develop type 2 diabetes. So really getting you more anti-inflammatory foods. And how much turmeric would that be? So usually studies tend to use them around like um, a teaspoon of, of curcumin or turmeric. So just a powder? Yeah. Actually, you powder. don't need to have the, the raw? Yeah, like I tend to use the powder because when you look at the curcumin extracts, the doses are very extremely when you actually do analysis on them. And you don't want too much. And of course, you, you want there to be some actual curcumin in there. And some of them, there's basically none in. So yeah. I prefer just getting the, the turmeric powder. Okay. And I take around half a teaspoon a day. I, I, like, I got to like really... Found a really good um, turmeric latte. That's one of my go-to-bed rituals. That's where I get it from, and I think that's good. You don't want too much. It has quite a high amount of oxalate, which could translate to an increased risk of, of kidney stones if you get too much of it. So I eat a fresh smoothie most days, yeah. and I have like a small piece, like five cent. I probably have like six, seven centimeters. That would be that would be quite a lot. I think. So more. Is I not think the translation enough. is like two centimeters of the root. Translate to around one teaspoon of the powder. Okay. So I think that you, you you're probably getting a bit too much, um, at least for getting the benefits. Yeah. So most studies show of excellent benefit, like just half a, a teaspoon. Yeah. Okay. So I need to go down from uh, just putting more roots down. I used to have a lot of ginger as well. Yeah. That, um, but more is not necessarily better. Is definitely in the doses. definitely not. Also because like turmeric is a bit, actually a little bit pro-inflammatory initially. Okay. It kind of um works the same way that exercise does like so when you exercise you get like a spike in inflammation and then the body op- regulates its anti-inflammatory mechanisms mostly through epigenetics yeah. and and then you lower the inflammation level and the same is kind of the same is what turmeric does it gives a small spike of inflammation and then the body lowers it afterwards yeah got it so i'm definitely changing my smoothies now i just did packaging for 12 days the other day so uh, with a I don't think you you are no. you you are going to be in, uh, having problems with the dose you're taking. No. It's more if you take like high dose <clears throat> supplements and you yeah. start adding pepper to the supplements as well, so you, which normally boosts the absorption quite a lot. Yeah, so you, I use pepper in my smoothies. Yeah, for, for I think you would be fine without the pepper yeah. as well, and just having the smaller dose of of, yeah. of turmeric. Yeah, cool. That is noted. And what about people that have heart problems? So remember you. At this talk you were giving, you were talking yeah. about stuff you could do, like you can get the pharmaceuticals that can be really good for you, but you can do a lot with food instead. I think when you look at what diet can and uh, what a plant-based diet can in particular, 
the absolute best argument for going plant-based is heart health. And the reason for that is a plant-based diet is the only diet ever that has been shown to reverse atherosclerosis, which is the root cause of heart disease, which is like when you have plaque building up in your arteries and can lead to stroke or um, all kinds of problems. And um, normally we've always thought this thing to be something that would just get worse and worse and worse and worse. So the first scientist to prove that this wasn't the case was Dr. Esselstyn, Carl Esselstyn and Dr. Dean Ornish. They both made quite brilliant studies where they put people on a very, very low-fat, very strict plant-based diet and saw a significant reversal of atherosclerosis on uh, x-ray. So since this is one of the leading causes of deaths and no other diet has has shown these effects, I think this is the main argument to go plant-based. And I tend to go back to this argument quite a lot when people kind of go into like small details about, well, there might not be enough calcium in a plant-based diet. And it's okay, fine. Well, how many people die from lack of calcium? Basically, not like it. It it is minuscule amounts of people where you look at heart disease, one of our number one killers, and we have a diet that seems to reverse it. Yeah. Yeah. What are, so now you're mentioning... What are some of the things that you often hear as concerns for going to a plant-based diet, a vegetarian, vegan diet? I think the science has proven quite clearly that it does, it's superior when it comes to preventing type 2 diabetes, preventing heart disease. It's also recommended by the World Cancer Research Foundation for optimal cancer prevention. It's what's optimal for weight loss. It's optimal for the climate. It's optimal for... um, microbiome, all these things are quite significantly, solidly described in the scientific literature. The one thing where there seems to be some debate is about whether it's good enough to provide a significant amount of macro and micronutrients. The macronutrients that people sometimes are concerned about is is protein, and that's usually not a problem. It can be on a vegan diet if it's a junk food vegan diet where Mm. you don't get that many quality foods but you eat a lot of french fries and white toast yeah then you can get protein deficient but if you eat real whole foods it's very very hard to actually develop a protein deficiency and what is also important when we talk protein is that getting too little protein is not the problem the western world is having right now we're getting way 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 too much protein and it's Animal protein in particular is very strongly correlated with kidney disease. It's correlated with type 2 diabetes. It's correlated with quite a few different cancers. It's not something that you want too much of. And when you look at Danish numbers or just Western European numbers or American numbers, we're definitely getting way, way too much of it. So this idea that like we have to get more protein, get more protein is, is an unhealthy obsession. If you're eating plant-based, you will get the protein you need and every single plant has every single amino acid. So this idea that you hear that plant protein is inferior and need to complement it has like been debunked back in the 80s. Like So it, it, we, we've come a long way from these unhealthy myths. Hmm. So what would you recommend? So there's several movies that's really been changing the perception in the public yeah. on this plant-based vegetarian vegan diet. There was first Cowspiracy, there was What's the Health, and now there's the Game Changers. And I yeah. think I have several friends that used to be just, just meat, and yeah. they're like, I want to try 
a vegetarian diet. And the question I got from a few of them that are training a lot, mm. that was really like one of the questions I got asked to ask you as well is like if you train a lot and you really want to build muscles, what are the best sources to get that protein so you still get? Well, you want to get it from a healthy package. Yeah. So you want to get you, you just don't want the the sole protein. You want it with a lot of other nutrients, and like the best protein package is beans beans and, and lentils you should definitely try to get several portions of beans and lentils every day and then you should just eat real food and that will provide a significant amount of, of protein even like food like broccoli or rice has high amounts of protein oats has high amount of protein so if you just eat real food you're not gonna be lacking it and even if you're doing quite rigorous exercise you don't really need to add additional protein if you're eating a healthy plant-based diet especially if you're like not getting a lot of redundant calories normally you would have well, 2,000 calories on a normal activity level mm. maybe 3,000 if you were exercising a lot so you really want to make every single calorie count by getting something that has protein that has other nutrients so you don't want to use it on junk food like processed foods or oils or um, uh, sugary beverages stuff like that if you spend a lot of your calories on these kind of foods yeah then you have a chance of of not getting enough protein or other micronutrients that you need but if you really eat mm-hmm. quite a strict whole food plant-based diet it's not going to be a problem so Normally, I think like protein is kind of a boring subject, yeah. I, I, so I, I don't want to like um, go too deep in go that. too deep in that. I think it's more more interesting maybe to have some uh, focus on some of the the micronutrients that are yeah. more uh, important and where you actually have to give some consideration. I just looked into um, the studies this last week on on B twelve because I was quite <clears throat> um, disturbed at how few vegans and vegetarians and people eating plant-based actually took the supplements. Mm. Uh, a Danish study looked at 70 vegans and only 21 of them took a B12 supplement and none of them took a dose that would probably be sufficient in, in keeping their levels at normal. And when you look at the big analysis on vegetarians, they usually find that like up to like 50-60% can be uh, deficient in, in, in B12. And that causes quite a lot of, of problems and people are really bad at taking the supplements. And it really it really makes me sad also because it kind of ruins a lot of the, the conversation because people are making small mistakes. Yeah. So you know they're doing good stuff. It does. And like it, it kind of a lot of the science behind a vegetarian diet is kind of skewed by a lot of people in, this, in those studies not taking a B12 supplement. Most studies show a, a, a quite a significant benefit to cardiovascular health on a vegetarian diet, but some actually don't, which is quite weird when you look at how efficient a vegetarian diet is at controlling the, number, uh, the two most important risk factors for cardiovascular disease. If you go on a vegetarian diet, your blood pressure will go down and your cholesterol will go down and it will go down quite significantly. So that should translate into huge gains, but sometimes it doesn't. And that's probably because vegetarians are bad at taking their B12. Then they get elevated homocysteine levels, which damage their arteries. So they're not getting the benefit that they should Mm. have. So B12 is one. What are some other important things to be aware of? I think D-vitamin is definitely something that you have to be, uh, be aware of. Basically, everyone in Denmark 
basically everyone in the Europe, in the United States, or vitamin D deficient. I think the recommended dose in Denmark is 10 micrograms, which is quite low. I think the, U- the US is 15, a lot of other places is 15. But the average intake is only about 4.3 micrograms. So we're getting less than half. Mm. And even studies founded by the fish industry show that if you're even eating the fish that is normally recommended by uh, the Danish health authorities, you're not actually getting anywhere near the D vitamin you should from your diet. So Everyone probably needs to take a D vitamin supplement in the winter time, but vegans or vegetarians even more so because they're not getting these small amounts from the fish. Hmm. Iodine is another thing. Iodine is usually something we get in, in salt in Denmark. It's different between different countries. Uh, most countries kind of add iodine to some kind of food. For example, in Norway, they add it to the milk, hmm. but here we add it to the salt. And it's kind of weird that you add something that you that you know the the public is lacking, but you add it to an unhealthy source instead of a more healthy source. Because one of the most important things when we're talking about healthy diet is really to minimize your salt intake. Most men in Denmark are getting probably around 11, 13 grams. You're not allowed to get more than five grams. So we're getting more than double. And one of the most important things is eat less salt. And if you eat less salt, then your risk of getting iodine, iodine deficient becomes higher. And the second biggest source of iodine in, in Denmark is um, is cow's milk because you, you put it on the udder to prevent infection. So it's not a natural occurring substance in the milk, but it, yeah, it's a common source for it. Yep. So If I can just go to the salt, I think that's pretty interesting because yeah. you see a lot of the biohackers. Yeah. They uh, drink water with lemon and some Himalaya sea salt or something else in the morning mm. and try and add it. Yeah. And when I... I remember you said that point earlier as well at the presentation. Yeah. And I asked a few of them, they're like, yeah, if you eat a normal diet, you get a ton of salt from all of this mm. processed food. Mm. But if you eat a clean diet with mostly like non-processed mm. food and so on, then it's fine to separate with some salt. What's your opinion on that? Well, when you look at inflammatory markers after a salty meal, yeah. they go up yeah. quite significantly. And that doesn't matter if what the baseline was or it doesn't matter what the rest of your diet is. The salts impact on the body is pro-inflammatory and that doesn't matter if it's normal cheap table salt or it's himalayan salt and the idea that the himalayan salt is better than any other kind of salt is just taken out of thin air it's true it has some minerals that gives it the color but the minerals are in so small amounts that, that it has none no effect whatsoever on our health any kind of salt has the same basic impact on the body and it's will always be pro-inflammatory. You see this in studies where like people have asthma and like the only thing they do is go on a severe salt-restricted diet and it has enormous effect on lowering their needs for medications. So I would never take salt from uh, an idea that it would give me any health benefit. And we need very, very low levels of, of uh, salt. We evolutionarily, we not had access to industrial salt. So our body's ability to retain it and conserve it is extremely high. So I would definitely not add it to to foods unless you you really need that, uh, feel that it needs to be added for taste uh, purposes. But what do you think is the reason why some of these fairly educated people as well are so big fans of salt? Some of them are also medical doctors and so on. Like what's the misunderstanding I actually don't know why you would take it. I don't. 
Yeah. But well, it's, it's a good question. I will have, we'll have to ask them when I meet these people. Cool. I'll yeah. try and uh, yeah. forward that question as well. Because it's mm. always interesting when you have educated people yeah. that are also very much into the plant-based diet and mm. so on. They will actually be advocating for for using a little bit of salt. So not a lot of salt. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But that's something to follow up on. That's definitely something to follow up on. Mm. So you're saying some other uh, minerals and vitamins to be aware of. Yes, selenium is probably one to also to be um, have a focus on. We tend to get quite low amounts in Denmark because it's it's not very um, prevalent in the uh, in, in the soil. Mm. So most people in Denmark get it through meats because it kind of like concentrates. So when you look at the average levels of um, selenium intake for uh, vegans, it's probably half of what it should be. It's something you can get from plants. Just getting a few Brazil nuts a day mm. would completely cover your intake. I tried to do that for a long time, but then I ran out of Brazil nuts and I just didn't get around yes. to buying them. And so I found it was I had a like hard time getting actually a reliable source of it. Yeah. So it's a supplement that I take now. Maybe not every day, but I kind of I take it from time to time just to make sure that I keep my levels up. The same with iodine. I, I sometimes put a drop in, in my food. Not every day necessarily, but just to make sure that I, I get some, some food at the week. And do you get blood tests to know your value, so you know how much you should get, or...? I, I don't. Blood tests are usually not that effective at, at showing vitamin levels. Most vitamins fluctuate quite a lot through the day, and most tests are quite not very accurate. And most vitamins, you're actually more interested in intracellular concentrations and not serum concentrations. And most tests are looking at serum concentrations. Mm. Also, one of the big problems with like a B12, it's also serum, but you actually want to load the cellular concentrations. So it can kind of, uh, you can have a B12 deficiency even though your your blood test is normal. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of testing uh, mm. too much. I think I think everyone should take a D, D vitamin supplement. So taking a test for it is probably not going to have any say in, in what kind of path you should, you should take. You should just take it. Mm. And, and the same goes for B12 if you're vegetarian, vegan, or just even flexitarian. Mm. So people had this idea that blood tests are really, really valuable and mm. give you a lot of information. And a lot of people come to me as a... I work in a family practice, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of people come to me every day and like, can I get this blood test? Because I just want to make sure that everything is mm. okay. And it's usually a very, very little clinical value. Also, the only blood tests that in large studies ever have been found to have a, a life-prolonging effect is having your cholesterol levels checked. Mm. Every other thing is, we haven't seen like a, an actual benefit for for screening. for. So I, I, I tend to say, yeah, we can take a blood, <clears throat> blood test and then... I add the cholesterol and then I, I kind of use it as an opening to talk yeah. about increasing fiber intake and lowering intakes of saturated fats and getting more plants on it. But vitamin levels are usually not something that has a, a large clinical um, no. purpose. Yeah. And so you think the problem with the blood test is that the value fluctuates too much through the day so that the level that you get... It, it, it depends on what kind of test you're looking at. For example, yeah. if you want to look at something like um, the water-soluble vitamins, like C-vitamin, then it'll fluctuate quite a lot. Okay. If you look at D-vitamin, it's, it tends to be a little more stable, but you have like um, seasonal changes. So if you get taken in the summer, it's not really going to help you. During the wintertime, you should still take it in the wintertime because it's just going to drop in the wintertime. Yeah. And there was an American scientist who, who took a blood test f- from one person 
and send it to 100 different labs to mm. test it for T-vitamin. And it, it just, the test results were all over the map. Yeah. Showing that you really have to be super careful about how you interpreted these blood tests when you, when you send them to lab. You're not necessarily certain you're going to get the actual value. Um, I heard that's a really big problem in general when you test whether it's microbiome or blood test mm. that you always need to send like several tests to the labs yeah. with, from the same person with mm. the same test with different names yeah. to see whether they're actually consistent because yeah. often you get, yeah. But I know there's a lot of functional practitioners and doctors and so on that are working with blood tests, yeah. blood tests, urine tests and so on yeah. to kind of advise from and then they test more than once a year, yeah. especially with with the sun so if you only test every summer mm. like you want to test at, at different uh, points during the year yeah but that's not something you would i don't really see that it has mm. that much relevance for mm. how i would recommend people eating or, yeah. or what kind of supplements that i would recommend them taking yeah so yeah i'm not a, i'm not a big fan but i do no. think there's some tests that you can take to optimize i think for yeah. example getting your homocysteine levels checked I think that would probably be a beneficial thing. Most of the people have elevated homocysteine. For most people, it's because they're getting too little folate. They're not eating enough dark leafy vegetables or not, mm. uh, not enough beans and lentils. But a lot of people, it can be also B12 deficiency or B6 deficiency or something. So I think that's a good test. But that and cholesterol and getting your insulin resistance level checked maybe every five years is probably kind the of most what, I, what I would recommend. At least from where I'm sitting, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there's a lot of different opinions out there and there's probably also a lot of resources so you can do a little bit of tweaking. Yeah. But I, I do think we have to also kind of let go of this idea that we're super unique and there's like only one like a, a unique supplement for me and one unique diet for me. Basically, we're, we're quite the same. Like there's no solid evidence for this idea that we have to individualize our diets or even even supplements we we are quite similar yeah. and so yeah, i tend to find that it's the same kind of diet that works for everyone and the yeah. same kind of supplements that work for everyone and we don't really need to do individual tests for, to figure out which one that is so what's your the supplement package you do you take I take 250 micrograms of cyanocopamil, like B12 a day. Yeah. I take uh, 200 micrograms of uh, selenium. Yeah. I take 150 micrograms of iodine. And I take 25 micrograms of D vitamin. Right now, I'm, I'm contemplating going up to 50. So if you ask me in, in a month's time, I might have changed that. Mm. I think this, the, uh, the, the data you... on that is quite um, conflicting. So I'm, I'm trying to get a bigger grasp on that and how, what will make you decide on whether to take more if you're not testing it will it be how you feel in the body or if you find new studies it's, it's the studies that i'm looking at yeah it's the studies that i'm looking at and then i take an omega-3 uh, capsule algae based 200 micrograms um, dha and 100 grams of epa the reason why i do that is not because I, it has a good effect on on heart health or um, or cancer or type 2 diabetes omega-3 supplements have actually been quite discouraging to study at least for the last decade most large studies show they have uh, very limited benefit but there does seem to be some relevance for brain health to having um, at least some circulating uh, dha in the body and the confusion about alpha linolenic acid you make a three that is in flax seeds chia seeds and, and and nuts is to some extent true like some people don't 
converted as good as they should. We tend to get worse at it as we age. Men tend to be a little bit worse at it than women. So I think it's not something that I recommend to everyone. Like in the plant-based diet, it's not a strict recommendation because the science for it protecting the brain is, is, is there, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's so strong that I would say, okay, everyone needs to eat this mm. supplement. But I think there's also um, a difference between what I find is worth for me to take based on that there's one study that kind of shows it has a benefit and as a difference between me saying to everyone that I uh, advise you have to take yeah. this. But there's there are some studies that show it, it kind of maybe make the, the brain age a little slower. Yeah. And I think that's worth taking a supplement for. Yeah. yeah. So you advised a lot of people on these lifestyle changes. I do, yeah. What's the easiest way to get started? Because I often hear people like information is one thing, but it's hard to get started. Like, yeah. Um, so the way I do it in, in the clinical setting where I work now is I, I always tend to um, talk about breakfast at the first consultation. And the reason why I do that is because people tend to eat the same breakfast every day. So just changing one meal to something else can like change a third of their diet. And usually a lot of people. Uh, eat a very unhealthy breakfast. A lot of people eat like a bread with or cheese or something like that. Or, so it's quite easy to like really make a big change by just mm. saying, okay, eat oats. That's my basic recommendation. Eat oats, use soy milk with added calcium and add like some, some grounded flax seeds on it, put some berries on it. Just doing that change would typically confer to a, a significant decrease in cholesterol, a significant decrease in blood pressure over the, the following weeks. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I can see a clinical impact of just doing that. And most people, they can do that. Yeah. Not everyone can go a, a whole food plant-based, but most people can change their breakfast. So I always start with that. And I, it seems to work quite well. And people are not like, um, they don't get too defensive about changing their breakfast. It's fine. And then... I give them a new time, maybe three weeks later, and yeah. then I, I kind of talk about lunch. Yeah. And my main emphasis there is get them, get them away from the processed meats, because yeah. if there's any food that we know is really, really, really harmful for us, it's processed meat. So get them away from that, get them away from cheese, and then try to find something they, they can eat for, for lunch instead. And that can be quite hard. Like Most people haven't heard of, of hummus or bean spreads or... Uh, or don't like avocados or like so that's usually can take some time and you have then, a lot of uh, recipes in the book right we do yeah yeah to make it simple to make it simple and then the following i would start opening a dinner because that's usually the harder one also because it's, it's a social meal a lot of people have breakfast and lunch kind of for themselves and it's not something that you have to involve other people in mm. but the dinner is, is is complicated and usually i would have to get the spouse in as well to kind of have a, a group discussion about how to change it and it's usually something that that happens significantly more slowly where i have to identify which kind of foods they like and how mm. to find foods that have kind of the same qualities but are more plant-based mm. and I, I never try to to sell people a, a vegan or a plant-based diet a lot of vegan or a vegetarian diets because for me that's an ethical choice and i don't think that's what a doctor should do to a patient um But I, I try to tell them what is possible with an optimal diet. And I do describe 
a whole food plant-based mm. diet as an optimal diet, but I always like, you don't have to go all the way. I'm just showing you what the optimal is, mm. how far you go, that's up to you. But I also tend to tell them that you, I want you to go as far as, as you definitely begin to feel better. Mm. Because if you just change the diet a little bit, and I see their cholesterol goes down, I see their blood pressure goes down, but if they don't feel better, they're not going to stick with it. Then it's going to be a short-term gain, and then they're going to eat the usual diet in a year's time. Mm. So they have to actually feel that their asthma is getting better, that their eczema is getting better, that they're like lost weight, they're sleeping better. I have to get these subjective improvements before I feel comfortable kind of letting them go. Yeah. And then I think this is one of the main arguments against uh, everything in moderation, because if you do everything in moderation, you're probably not going to get the improvements that you need to actually feel better, and then it's not going to last. And when someone says everything in moderation, that's usually what they say after taking another piece of cake. It's yeah. not something you say before taking an extra scoop of salad. So I try to really tell them this, and I try to identify potential food addictions, like addictions to salt, addictions to fat, addictions to sugar. And I try to be quite precise that this is an, uh, an addiction. And for example, if you were addicted to um, to alcohol or uh, cigarettes, you, you as a doctor don't say, well, now you should only smoke five cigarettes a day. You kind of have to, to kind of be quite aggressive in getting rid of this addiction. And that means getting rid of, for example, if at a patient's age, he drinks uh, two liters of, of uh, Pepsi Max every single day, like uh, artificially sweetened cola and... That's uh, not super good. No, and I was like, and she's like, tried like drinking a little less every time and, uh, but then she goes back up. And that's what we often see, like she's the only way she's ever gonna stop doing that is not just eating or drinking a little less, it's stopping Fully completely. Stopping. And the mm. same with like smokers, the success rates of stopping to smoke is significantly higher if you just do a full stop from one day to the other than having going down from like 20 cigarettes, 10 cigarettes, 5 cigarettes, because that gives you the illusion that you're in control and you're not really like you're, you're, like you're in the, uh, the grasp of, of the thing that you're addicted to. So you have to like really be quite consistent. Yeah. Also because a taste buds are quite dynamic. So if you're eating a lot of processed, fatty, salty, and sugary foods on the weekends, but being quite healthy on, on the weekdays, you're making it significantly harder for yourself because you're constantly craving these foods because that's just how our, our taste buds and our brain works. If we're exposed to these foods, we're going to want them. So I try to really des describe this to people so they can get motivated to really give it a full go. And a, a full go. Yeah. Because they need to experience that it has a beneficial effect on them for them to stay on, on course. That's what the goal is. The goal is not to get them on a, a short-term diet that's going to make them lose five pounds or so. It's, it's really getting them on a path that they, they want to stay on forever. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Before we round off, where can people find out more about you? Yes, I'm not that happy about social media. It kind of... Um, stresses me out but i have um, a facebook page with the dietitian that i wrote the book with maria yeah. Felding, called then then planned up as the cost we tend to post there when we see uh, very misleading articles in the news media just to 
clarify whatever they have put out because that's also another point like if you want to study how nutrition works and how to be healthy a good thing is to really really be skeptical about what you read on difficult uh, different news medias nine out of ten times it tends to be severely misleading hmm. this often clickbait it is and like they tend to find studies that contradict the overall science to be interesting so for example a new study that shows red meat gives colon cancer is not going to get any clicks or any space on media but a study that says it doesn't get, well that's news we'll, we'll get that out there and that tends to be a huge problem and i think one of the reasons why people are really really confused about what a healthy diet is but also some people just i find tend to willingly be confused because mm. if they're willingly like confused well saying oh nobody knows really what a healthy diet is then they have like a good excuse not to change their diet because i think most people deep down have a pretty good idea what a healthy diet is we know fruit is healthy we know vegetables beans nuts and seeds whole grains healthy. we know this this is i think for most people there's not much debate but mm. We tend to still well. We don't really know, and I'll until then I'll stick with my uh, my my steak and cheese. Yeah, cool. And the last summing up, like a final recommendation, if you had to say one to three things. It's never too late to change your diet. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend everyone that's like contemplating it to give it a go, and definitely try to to give it your all, so you begin to actually feel how it affects you and i really recommend you to look to the science not to newspapers but actually find sources where there's complete transparency to where the literature is i don't think there's an, another source that's as good as uh, nutritionfacts.org so really spend some time there and uh, maybe read also how not to die by michael gregor i think is a very great summary of um, of the literature yeah and uh, i hope you got inspired to eat more plant-based. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tobias. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.